0: gentleman is wrong
1: if i played blink 182 for aliens they would get offended and start an interdimensional war the world needs me what are you watching children's programming jason i've watched you for
2: for many years on uh i listened to the all gen gamers podcast when i was in high school and i was a huge fan of that so um it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and uh, get a chance to talk to you actually
0: yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. Thank you for the for the long time support. I, I love meeting people who say that to me. It makes me feel really good because that's we we did we did some cool stuff on that podcast for sure. Yeah, and a lot of people listen to it, and I like it's like meeting new people. Man, that's that's way cool. Thank you for that.
2: Um, why exactly did you guys end up stopping that? Because I remember it just kind of disappeared for a while. Was it just a matter of uh, time frame and people not being able to get together? Or? Yeah, it's all scheduling. That's it. Um, it we, we did it. I mean, I,
0: I produced that show from really since episode six on. And we, we went for a very long time. It was, I mean, a great show. But what happened was uh, we couldn't get everyone together. Um, scheduling, you know, as you get older, things change a little bit. You know, life happens, right? And uh, we don't, not all of us have the, the time to invest that we may once had. So it was really just a scheduling thing. And we kind of all agreed that if we all can't be here for the show, um, then we don't really have a show. Cause we were for the last year of it, we were kind of, Oh, you know, piecing it together. Like it was mostly like, you know, Pete, he had his schedules changing and he couldn't really make it a lot. So we do a show without him and people were like, well, where was Pete? And like, well, I don't know. He's, he's busy, but we still want to do the show. So, you know, and the people kind of were like, well, we want everyone there we're like yeah well we do too so let's just stop it then you know we can't get everyone together we can't commit to it you know what i mean it's it's hard to get four or five guys plus a guest we did it for like seven years
2: yeah i mean you guys were uh you know you guys are doing your channels and you also have your own personal lives and you all live in you know i assume different time zones at that point so you know that's that's perfectly understandable yeah um so for everybody who's listening uh, this is Children's Programming welcome to episode 40 um we're get- back we're back better than ever <laughs> live and in person um and this week we're joined by a very special guest Mr uh, Jason Heine um if you're not familiar with him um one of the individuals who was big in the uh, retro gaming community on YouTube at least in my mind um a few years in the uh, back probably in the last decade um and what's the the project you do now is uh, Heine House uh, Entertainment I believe it's called
0: yeah. Yep. That's yeah. Heine House Entertainment. That's the umbrella business for everything that I do. It's basically uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of uh, there's there's Twitch. There's YouTube. There's podcasts. I, I do. I produce um, audio and music and uh, for video games. And I do just all kinds of stuff, man. I've just wrapped my myself into any form of entertainment. I can get my hands on because I love it and very passionate about it. And I I'm thrilled to be able to continue to do it. Very thankful for it. So.
2: Yeah, I was, um, uh, of all the people in the, in the group there, of the, uh, the retro gaming community, especially on the All Gen Gamers podcast, you always seemed like the one that was the most interesting to me, because I ended up becoming more into audio over time. So, you know, seeing some of the things you did with your your, music, uh, your, your musical work and, you know, your audio wizardry was very, uh, you know, very inspirational, I, I should
1: say. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Where did the passion for um, the, that kind of media begin? Was it like a, a childhood thing? Like you, you were playing a lot of games and then it just stuck with you throughout your whole life? Or where did that originate from?
0: Yeah, it started when I was really young, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, when, I was a, when I was a child, my mom would put me in the, the, the little crib, little playpen right in front of the TV and like MTV was playing and I would sit there and just dance. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, <laughs> there'd be music playing. And, and, you know, maybe subconsciously, subconsciously in my head, you know, that was sort of, you know, grooming me to be somewhat into music. But my, my father was uh, a radio DJ in college. And so that came home where he had all of his, his records and his setup and microphones, speakers. And we always had music in the house. So he was always putting on records and playing. And, and it just kind of, that kind of stemmed and sparked my interest because it was always there. So we were listening to music and just, you know, a musical family. Um, yeah. And then from there, man, it, it really went into I started to play drums at 14. I got a drum set for Christmas and it just kind of sparked sparked my interest. I didn't really want a drum set. I didn't even ask for one. But my mom, my crazy mom, she got one for me. Who does that? <laughs> you know, who
2: does that? Pretty cool. mom. And huh?
0: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, totally. I, I, I'm so thankful. And I and, I, you know, I'm so thankful that, you know, my my parents are still with me right now. And so I, I can tell them this and I thank them for it. Cause you know, it's, it's continued my passion and my love for entertainment and content creation. And you know, my dad always filming everything and I have videotapes of my childhood. It's funny. I actually, I just did a memoir about all this because there's so much about it. And you know, it's, it's fascinating and I'm thankful to be able to look back on all this stuff and have these tapes and these memories and, It's cool, man. It's cool. We all need, we all should document as much of our lives as we can because, and I say this, I don't want to sound like, you know, morbid or anything, but like reality is folks like today we're here. I'm sitting here with Matt and Nick doing a Mm -hmm. podcast episode talking about awesome stuff. But like tomorrow it could all end. You know what I mean? Like something could happen and we could not be here anymore. So like, you guys are content creators. We're we're here. We're creating content. We're sharing our lives. Like this is really important stuff. Everyone should do it if if they feel like they want to, and um, yeah, and just don't don't ever stop doing that. And be inspired and be curious about things.
1: That's what I've always tried to be. That touched my heart. Thank you. <laughs> I tried. No, it's it's, and that's that's so cool. And it's 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 funny because it seems like you're kind of describing my experience, too, because I had a very similar upbringing where my dad was like a college radio guy back in the day. and There was a lot of music in the house. And when you said that that kind of started uh, subconsciously started your uh, trend toward this type of stuff, I felt like I felt like that was the same thing with me. So. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. What kind of stuff were you listening to back then, or was he listening
0: to? Um, we listened to a lot. So obviously, he loved you know, um, the Doors and Rolling Stones. He came out of you know the, the '60s and the '70s, you know, with with that sort of thing going on. But then it it quickly changed. We were listening to like new wave. Um, he was listening to a lot of like pop pop rock stuff, and then we went not necessarily like. A little bit of disco stuff in the 70s, but like we were listening to like, you know, Phil Collins and Talking Heads and Michael Jackson and, you mm. know, Peter Gabriel and, you know, all that sort of thing. So we kind of went that route. Like I missed, I missed the whole like um, hair metal stuff that was going on at the time. Didn't even really know it existed because uh, he didn't really listen to that a whole lot. Found that later mm. on in life, of course. But yeah, we, I would say, I would say we listened to a lot of the new wave stuff, man, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the pop stuff at that time in the 80s
2: did he maintain a lot of listenership as far as the stuff he played on the radio was that mostly what he was exposed to or was he one of those type of djs that played a completely different kind of music than what he listened to at home
0: no it was it was actually kind of a mixture he you see you know and back then in the day right it wasn't controlled like it is today today it's just just a, a a playlist that they just hit space bar and it goes But back then you actually put the record on and played it and you could pick and choose. And you may have had a program director or or your buddy that sat there with you, you know, that was the program director, and you guys could play what you wanted. So he played really whatever he wanted, but he always tells me this really cool story about when they were doing this, they would write into record labels. Okay, imagine this. Think about this. They would send letters, you know, physical letters to record labels all over the US, California. Um, they would send them down there to LA. They'd send them out there to to DC and, and New York. And they would send letters like, hey, we're this radio station. And um, you know they had their call sign. They had everything. It, it looked like a real legit operation, which I mean, it was, they were a small station, but it was a legit operation. And these record labels would send them crates of 45 of of new music coming out. Maybe pro, all promo stuff. He, I, I mean, he has a collection of promo records in the thousands. Wow. It's, it's unreal. And they just would get this stuff for free every single week.
2: It's incredible to see that a record company would be that open to giving out their stuff to a record station, uh, a radio station. And now they're just very controlling over their media.
0: What yeah. a time, right? Exactly. It's such a great point. It's insane how everything has changed so much. You know, back then they were like, well, we got to get this out. Like, yes, like, come on, let's, let's, we got to get this music out. Let them, let them play it. So, People will like it and buy it now it's it's totally different.
2: The industry is just but. more directed towards finances than it is to actual high quality audio
1: I also think Very that true. that um, there's been a shift in the way we consume because uh, back in the day it was really important to get the records out to those stations because that was really the only way for an unknown artist to build up a reputation and build up notoriety. but today it's it's so it's become kind of democratized where you almost don't need a label anymore i feel cuz you can put your music on soundcloud you can put it on spotify you can put it on these streaming services and if you're if you're savvy with your instagram promotion or your twitter promotion people will find it one way or another you almost don't need a label so i kind of understand why the labels have pulled back and they're they're more protective of their content now and they're less willing to give stuff away for free but it's still it's still mind blowing and it's still really a shame for music fans that it's it's hard and and for especially for radio stations i would think that it's hard to get a hold of a lot of this stuff
0: i agree completely on every single point you made 100 percent accurate it's totally different the way it is today and how we consume for sure mm-hmm.
2: when you were um i remember back in the day you said uh, you were one of the earlier people to uh to really get involved with spotify what was the exactly the process as far as when they reached out to you for the first time? Like, I don't know what your situation is with, with your independent music. Like, is it a a label music or is it just something you produce yourself? How did it, as far as how did that go with getting on Spotify early on? Uh,
0: yeah, this was, this was something that I talked about earlier last year about it. And I think I was referring to Apple music, Spotify too, of course, but, um, Back in the day, I was using um, CD Baby as a kind of a digital distribution and and partner to get my music online, and that's something that everyone can do. You can use CD Baby as kind of a, a middleman to do it. It's it's kind of different nowadays. You can get your music onto all these platforms, you know, DistroKid, or CD Baby, or other outlets as well. But the early days it was kind of the wild west um, of, of doing that, and I remember sitting down. Um, I remember sitting down up at um, I went up to Seattle to have a meeting, actual in-person meeting about this sort of thing. And I was, you know, I'm I'm still an independent artist, of course, but we sat down and we talked about it and it was kind of like, okay, there's this, you know, there's iTunes. And this is way before Spotify. This is 2003, maybe 2002, 2003. And it's like, you know, you're, we can, we can publish your music and get it up there on, 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 Digital and people can purchase it and buy it. This was even before streaming, um, and it was it was cool. It was really really cool. But of course, the hard thing is is to get people to to even you know pay and download your song for for a dollar back then. But it was a really cool thing to tell your friends like, hey, check this out. Like my music's on on uh, on iTunes, you know. And you know, iTunes of course went on to be the the podcast platform mecca for that. You know, we're very thankful for that sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's. It's again. That's the whole thing that's changed. Like that's totally different today too. Like I can, I can now, which I've done. Even even done. I, I release my music. I release background beats for streamers and and for everyone online to use copyright free. You know, we have the whole DMCA stuff going on. I make packs and projects for people to help them out with that. You can use like royalty free music that I've produced over the last twenty years. All kinds of stuff that I've you know been sitting on. I can publish, but I can do that myself as Heiney House Entertainment. It's it's a record label. It's an entertainment house. It's a production studio. Like it's, it's kind of like an umbrella. That's why I call it the umbrella of everything. Because I can self-publish. I can self-produce, and I can do it all myself. And I, and you're right. You know, like you said it, Nick. You don't need a label. Mm-hmm. I am the label. You can, you can create a label. You create a business. Go create an LLC. Make your label. Do your projects and, and just run with it. Like you don't, you don't need that if that's the way you want to run your business. You know what I mean.
2: Sure, it's you like may a, not have
0: the promotion or you know the money to back you and and push your music to the front of the line, but it's like I, I have much more satisfaction of uh, doing it all myself, and and it feels great to do that.
1: It's like a startup tech company almost, because you're mm-hmm. like you're you're your own boss and you're your own promoter, and you've got to go out there and, and make the deal happen, no matter where it is. Yep, totally, totally.
2: Nick, when we interviewed uh, Tony Van Veen a few, uh, few weeks back, I remember he was mentioning a lot about, you know, he's obviously the uh, CEO of that uh, physical media company. And he mentioned mm-hmm. a lot of the fact that the, the whole point of physical media these days is it's helpful when you are an independent artist and you're traveling and you're able to bring it to events. And the whole physical media thing is helpful because, yeah, and you, can, you can gain fans because then people can go and buy these physical objects that are able to help them. You know, maintain that level of fandom with people, they will be able to have a memory of attending that event.
1: Right. It's a little more, it's a little easier to build an or to give them out. Like, it's a little easier to get people to listen to your music by just handing them something physical than it is to be like, oh, follow me on SoundCloud or whatever. Because there's, a, there's one more step that's taken out of the equation. You actually have it in front of you. And it's the choices, whether to, to put it in your CD player and listen to it in your car versus, um, whether to go to a link or not, which is kind of easier to be out of sight, out of mind, I suppose.
0: Yeah. That physical media argument, we'll, we'll go there for days. I'll always fight for that physical media (laughs) on all, all fronts when we're talking about, you know, video games or music and movies, all that sort of thing. It's, it's, uh. Yeah. I, I you love the physical aspect of it. Now you had, you know, you had Tony, I listened to that episode. That's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, that's a guy I should talk to because, uh, I mean, I've, I've used Disc Makers and CD Baby back before he was even involved with the company. So like mm. I, I'm, I'm a, an OG, uh, an artist with, with them. And man, that was
1: great. What a great episode. dude. Um, he was so fun to talk to. I feel yeah, he's like a he had, wealth of knowledge.
2: I feel like he had not done a lot of interviews in the past, so it was kind of like, oh, somebody actually felt interested in what he was, what he had to say, mm-hmm. and he even said afterwards, like he really enjoyed the conversation. So
1: he was, should do more. He's a really smart, well-spoken guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's very active on like. Um, I always see him when you have, look for jobs on uh, Indeed or whatever. He always responds to people when they write reviews about working there or whatever. He's he's very active in in promoting his company. So. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what you need to be when you're a small business owner. You need to be kind of on the grind day in and day out there every day, pushing it every day. Shout out, Tony.
2: We love Tony. for sure. Um, Where did you feel that, like, when it comes to producing your music independently, where do you think that line has to be where you are able to reach your audience a better way? Like, obviously, you can say, like you said, follow me on SoundCloud, follow me on uh, Bandcamp or whatever, but what do you find are the best ways to promote your yourself?
0: Yeah. That's something that is, I think continuously being worked on with a work in progress. You know, there's what happens is is we have all these outlets and, uh, even, even this, this week I was sitting here, (laughs) somebody wrote me on, this is so funny. Uh, I will answer the question. I'm going to just dance around it for a second. Somebody on, go go off. It's fine. (laughs) Facebook wrote me in. They're like, Hey, uh, Somebody just posted your one of your videos on TikTok. So someone and you know, that happens, I guess. You know, someone took one of my videos and it's it's of of us getting a Nintendo 64 for Christmas in ninety six. My dad filmed Mm -hmm. it and I posted online. I posted that that like ten years ago because I'm archiving stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I posted that and someone had put put that on TikTok and it's got millions of views or whatever. And I'm just like, whoa, like I wish I could have got millions of views, right? It's my video Mm and people are loving it. But the thing is, it's like There's so many platforms that sometimes, um, especially if you're kind of like a one-man show, um, it's hard to, you know, you spread yourself really thin. So, and I try to take advantage of all of it because I'm kind of on this mindset where you have to really take advantage of the technology we have in front of us. Going back to what we were just talking about is you can self-produce and self-publish and you have it at your fingertips. Where 20 years ago, I would have laughed at you if you would have said, yeah, well, in 20 years, you're going to be able to like, Release your music tomorrow to the world uh, for a very low cost and get it out there. You know, like I just wouldn't have thought that would have been possible, but we have the tools now to do it, and it's it's really exciting to be able to do that. Um, but anyway, so my my point was that you know somebody uploaded this to TikTok, and I'm like, man, I need to invest more time on on TikTok. You know, I need to start. I have an account. I need to post on there, but it's difficult. So in a way, you kind of have to make a a choice to what platform and what type of content you're going to release on that platform. Um, we, I think we all get in the, the mode of we're going to just create a, a bit of content and then just kind of blanket that across all of your social medias. And that's, that's fine. But I, it's, it's better if you can take time and actually curate something specific for that platform and give it a uniqueness. And that's what I'm trying to do moving forward. It takes a lot more time. It's much more difficult, but I think it serves the platform and your audience there better. Because believe it or not, um, maybe ten years ago this wasn't the case. But today you've got people all over the place that maybe they use TikTok, maybe they use Twitter, maybe they use Facebook, maybe they use Instagram, maybe they use Snapchat, you know, maybe they use something else. But they're all sometimes they 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 want to stay on that platform. That's the only platform they use. You know, you talk to people, I hate Facebook. Okay, well, mm-hmm. rightful, rightfully so. I get it too, you know. But so they don't use that. But there's a lot of people that do. Same thing with Twitter. It's like almost like you're leaving. You're leaving it on the table. You're leaving friends and fans, and um, it's a business. So you're leaving money on the table. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if I answered your question really. I kind of danced around it, but I just know that there's a lot of there's a lot out there. There's a lot of these platforms that can be overwhelming. I know I've been overwhelmed many times by it because it's just there's so much. But you can really sit down and think about what what kind of content would best serve this platform that would that would probably really help no you make. said
2: a, you said a lot of important things that i think about on a regular basis as far as when producing this show because you'll see you know the people on the internet you know the the Gary Vaynerchuk's and the Tim Ferriss's of the world that tell you that you have to produce like every day of the week and you got to you got to work 18 hours a day on your projects and you know use every bit of time you can to to, you know, produce content. But then, you know, not everybody has that sort of lifestyle where they're able to do that. You know, we have to juggle relationships and some of us who don't do that as a primary job. And, you know, it's definitely a very, it's a very difficult situation to be in because you want to do, you have the ability to do a lot and you have ability to put your stuff out there. But like you said, you have to really, you know, narrow it down to what, what do you want your audience to be? Do you want your audience to be everybody kind of right now because tiktok's pretty hot or do you want to stick with you know the generalized sort of facebook vibe so you know i think you made a lot of good valid points there
1: i think the key is that um i don't necessarily think you have to post every day but i'm i'm kind of a believer in you don't have to post all the time but you do have to make every post memorable if you want to grow your brand Mm -hmm. so yeah absolutely absolutely like it's i don't i don't know if it's about I. I, I guess it's like it's like the quality versus quantity argument It's like, cuz people will remember you if you post a lot and people will notice you if you post a lot but people will also notice you and remember you if every post is interesting if every post really says something that uh they're looking to hear that they feel coming out of you is important to you so it's you know it's two ways to go about it I think
2: and I feel like we've lost a bit of of quality when it comes to the content on the internet cuz a lot of people are trying to really be that sort of influencer as far as you know how they perceive themselves on the internet and it almost seems like some people when they post their content they're not really having any fun they're just kind of doing it because that's what's expected of them did you ever did you ever notice that as as you see people on the internet
0: oh yeah 100% 100% and yeah this is a whole <laughs> The whole this topic is a itself. whole <laughs> topic whole, we could whole Can of worms. This is a whole can of worms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and there's absolutely no no shame whatsoever in what I call playing the algorithm, right? And that mm-hmm. that term gets thrown around. The algorithm term gets thrown around a lot, and there's a, we could do a whole episode on just that word, on how it applies and how it doesn't apply and stuff. But you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. There's so much that that we could talk about whereas, you know, if if you get if you get to a certain point and you've got you've got something um you in a way you have to kind of play that algorithm. You have to play to your audience. So if people like that you do this one thing, that's the one thing you should do always if you want to get the views, if you want to get the traffic. It's when you start branching off and doing other things. We see it all the time. We see it in, um, you know, I stream on Twitch weekly, and I and I see this a lot, where you'll have somebody who will just play one game. Let's just take Call of Duty Warzone, because in the last two years, we've seen two billion Warzone streamers pop up, right, because of it's really popular and whatnot. When that Call of Duty Warzone streamer decides that they were like, well, I actually really like World of Warcraft too, so I'm going to play that. They play a different game, and the entire audience is like, what is? No. No. We don't want to watch you do that. We want to watch you play this. This is, this is what you do. This what, imagine it. Imagine that, though. And that's, that's the struggle that we have, and you see it a lot across all platforms, YouTube especially, where it's mm-hmm. like, well, this is the one thing that um, I'm known for or people really like. You go into your analytics and say what you want about YouTube and Google, but they've done a great job with their analytics in the last five years. You can really fine-tune and look You know what kind of content does well on your channel, and then do more of that if that's what you want to do. I've I've done it differently, man. I've always just no pun intended. I've always just beaten you know to my own drummer because I just want to do the content that I like to do and I'm passionate about. Because if I'm not doing something passionate and I'm into it, it's going to show in the video. Like it's just going to show, and I'm not going to sit there and be fake about it. You know, I'm not going to sit there and just be like, okay, let's put on a face and Try to try to get through this. You know, it's it's about being creative, and as an artist, yeah, we're creative beings. It's hard, it's hard to play that. But then I also know that I may be the lowest on the totem pole when it comes to, you know, v- viewership or audience retention or, or whatnot, because not everyone wants to watch the shit that I want to put together. You know, and and I understand and respect that as well.
1: Well said. Um, I think. Going back to like the influencer debate, I feel like a lot of people are getting into being influencers or wanting to be influencers for the wrong reasons. And that's why you see a lot of people who don't like look like they're passionate about what they do or don't look like they're having fun. Because like I was reading a survey the other day that said like among kids this age, like like uh, about 20% of them, their dream as a grown up is to be like a, a YouTube influencer or Instagram influencer. And it's like, you, like, that's not the people who got really successful by being influencers, whether that's in fashion, whether that's in media or whatever it is, that it kind of happened by accident for them, right? Like they just they were doing something they loved doing anyway. And it just so happened that people wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're going into it for the sake of, of just doing it, and you're not actually passionate about that thing, you're just doing it because you watch somebody that does it, it's going to show in your content, I think. And I think that's part of the reason that it seems like a lot of these, these folks aren't interested in what they're saying or aren't interested in what they're doing.
2: Well, you have a whole generation yeah. that's growing up like that. So, you know, maybe the mm-hmm. last generation didn't really have that, you know, they didn't have that vibe in their... There wasn't any social media for them to really experience so now like you said the people in that day who were you know doing just makeup tutorials or doing you know films and things like that and now these kids are growing up saying oh these people are successful they they're getting all this attention I, I want that attention so i think it's 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 a lot about that it's trying to trying to get that attention that they you know desire i mean that just might be a cynical approach from me but um
1: well, it's it's good and bad it's it's message that they're getting because like you'll you end up with a lot of people who go into it like i said for the wrong reasons but you also see that you don't need like we've been talking about before you also see that you don't need a label you don't need a studio you don't need x y and z um benefit to to get ahead on the internet and get ahead in, in culture anymore it's really just about you being on the grind and you being having something you're passionate about and going out and doing it. So that's a good message. So I, I, I'm very interested to see where we're at when like today's 12, 13 year olds, kind of the kids who grew up with social media their whole lives. Like, I'm very interested to see 10 years from now where we're at as a society, as those guys, those kids start going into the workforce and going into the adult world and seeing how things change. Because' we're, we're headed for a big change. I can feel it. I just don't mm-hmm. know what that's going to be, whether that's going to be um, for more a, a, more of a trend toward independent work and independent business and things like that, or whether that's going to be a trend toward more of an influencer culture overall, or I don't know what it's going to be, but I know there's something coming. I can feel it. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I don't like I said, I don't want to be cynical. I, I think that there are probably a lot of really smart kids out there who are going to you know help and bring in the next generation of, of content creators and things like that so Definitely. We, uh, the, the, I guess the the perspective I see is the majority of the people you see on the internet it's going to be the people that are following those trends so that's probably where that cynical take is coming from because that's the most visible thing I'm seeing but then you see mm-hmm. some of these smaller content creators out there who are make you know they're making pretty good things like you know people like Jason and you know people out there who create content that are very like niche and very you know specific to what people like and you know i think that's i think that's the kind of content that i like to see and you know it's just a matter of of picking and choosing what you want to do you don't have to you don't have to really follow the trends or anything like that you just kind of just got to do your thing and it may pop it may not it's just a matter of how much effort you want to put into it and you know how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to make that happen
1: and the thing I think people have to remember is that there's so many people in this world, there's so many different interests out there in this world that no matter what you choose to make your videos about, no matter what you choose to make your content about, there is going to be an audience out there for it. There are going to be people that want to see what you have to do. You could be talking about the most obscure you know, video game of all time, and there will be people that remember it that played it that find the video and love it you know what i mean mm-hmm. so they're they're every they're all out there so it's just a matter of, of being able to find them completely true
0: yeah just be passionate about it and uh, put in the hard work and enjoy your enjoy the ride
2: man that's what it's about just enjoy it
1: mm-hmm. very important like this podcast i'm enjoying the ride right now
2: and we're 40 episodes in so we've been clearly enjoying it over the last year yeah so. You know, it's a good time, you know, content creation's fun. It's just a matter of, you know, you, you got to love it and then know that maybe it might take a while before it might pop, you know, like we don't have a, a very strong listenership yet, but you know, mm-hmm. over time, if we keep showing the passion, which I think we do when we do the show, um, you know, maybe it'll, it'll pop off to somebody one day. Yeah. Jason, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the, uh, the retro gaming community around that, you know, around the, the mid-2010s time. That's a, w- a little weird to say now, but... Um, I know, right? I feel, like, I feel like the old grandpa on the, on the porch just sitting <laughs> in my swing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when I, was, um, when I was in high school, I really enjoyed uh, retro gaming collecting. And I, I found a lot of inspiration specifically from, uh, from Pete Dore, as you mentioned before, and uh, Happy Console Gamer uh, and Johnny Millennium. Um, if you could just kind of, um, give kind of a little bit of an overview, of how you met those guys and how you, re- how that group really got together. Yeah,
0: sure. Sure. Um, I began uh, creating, well, I created my YouTube channel in 2010. I'll try to do this, the quick summary of it. Sure, this sure. is a very long winded and that would bore your audience, but in 20, so 2010, I created my YouTube channel and it was just the blending of me wanting to bring my passions together. My, my love of audio and Um, and and mixing. And I wanted to do some sort of like radio broadcast style reviews, high quality um, H at the time. I was like HD video. That wasn't a really big thing then. And I wanted to kind of bring comedy and just, I wanted to bring it all together. So I created my YouTube channel was, was doing that with video game reviews and stuff like that. Uh, Also a place to share my music and all that good stuff. Well, I was watching, uh, I was watching Pete and I was watching Gamester 81 on, uh, on YouTube as well they have been around since 2008, so I've been watching them for a few years prior. Um, so come to find out, um, I I get a message from from Gamester81, John, and he's like, "Hey, you know, and at the time, the retro gaming community on YouTube was small, and and I I say this because it's so crazy when you think about it, people would probably say, oh, 'Oh, you're full of shit.' That, that there's no way, but back in 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 2009, 2010 the retro game community we all knew each other and if we didn't like if a new person posted a a retro game video on youtube like we all would watch it we all like there was a small handful of of people it was a really close community it was really cool and we all would comment on each other's videos and you know it was like this awesome community so john reached out to me and was like hey you know we've been watching your videos they're 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 great we'd love to have you on uh on our show the algin gamers and so it, it's a podcast. Okay, yeah. I've been listening to their podcast. I follow the YouTube. So i listened to the first five episodes. And so I was like, yeah, of course. I'd, I'd love to be on the show. So that's kind of how that, that started. I was going to go on just as a guest. Uh, and on episode six, uh, I, I was on there. And um, I ended up just becoming more than that. I mean, the chemistry was there. Sometimes you can't deny the chemistry. That's, that's the the magic potion if you will there's either chemistry or there isn't and there just was with all of us and they really needed the help Pete was like i don't know what i'm doing with this audio i it's hard I, I, i don't know how to mix it sounds so bad and people were complaining about the audio and i was like listen i can do this and i volunteered myself i volunteered myself absolutely free to produce their show record it and I didn't even want to be a guest, but they said, No, you're gonna be a guest. You're you're jumping in. This is great. And it, it worked so well. It was fantastic. So then that's why I met all the guys, Happy Console Gamer and um, you know, and John and Pete. And we just we just meshed, man. It was great. Um and then of course Ben came along and then Metal Jesus Rocks came as the guest originally. And we've we had a lot of great people on and it was it was such a great show. And it it brought so much to so many people because there wasn't anything like it. I think the only other gaming podcast at the time, another crazy thing to think about, the only other gaming podcast at the time, I think, was IGN was doing something and it wasn't, it wasn't retro related at all, right? They weren't doing anything retro. It was all modern. So there wasn't a whole lot out there. I think Classic Game Room was around doing YouTube videos. But then, of course, Angry Video Game Nerd, he was the one that sparked everyone's interest in it originally. But that's really about it. Um, and it was a great, great small community of retro gamers it was a great time for sure
2: yeah i mean back in the day i remember i didn't even realize it at the time like that that the community was so small like i probably watched a majority of the people you just mentioned and i didn't even realize that the community was that small and it just Mm -hmm. seemed like james Rolfe and uh in classic gamer in particular were the only ones that really that really popped off at the time where they were really really popular but it, it was surprising that the the retro gaming community wasn't bigger than it was and even still today it's not as big of a community but still it's um you know it's a pretty big topic because people are starting to get to that nostalgia vibe now and specifically when I, I remember back when i was i was hunting for games back in the day i remember i would i would see something on one of your guys videos and then i would be like oh i gotta go try to find that and oh yeah it course. was I, I felt it was so much easier back then to find stuff because back then it was still around the time when people thought okay this is like 20 2014 ish when mm-hmm. people were still like okay this stuff is not really that valuable and then at some point, there was this, this click with, with pop culture, where all of a sudden you were seeing Zelda selling for not, all, not 10 dollars anymore, not was selling for 30 dollars. And it was this weird little like spark where now everybody's trying to buy retro games because it's that in thing. And then, you know, I think that one of the big, really uh, turning points is when Pat the NES punk appeared on Pawn Stars, and he had the uh, Nintendo World Championship on that Mm -hmm. one episode and i think that was one of the big turning points where people started to kind of re-remember um retro games in that sense and they're having value Uh, Mm -hmm. pawn stars in particular had a few episodes like that where you somebody brought in an atari i remember once and um you know like the antiques roadshow kind of culture there is and like where where do you find that 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 kind of shift happened in the price of games because i'm sure where you live it's it's probably the same sort of thing
0: yeah i think it's kind of a it's a thing that, that I think we're all experiencing kind of worldwide. And it's, it's a culmination, I think, of the technology being available to us to be able to research and learn about our, the games from the past. But also, nostalgia is a bitch, right? People love it. And I say that in a good way. I'm, I'm, I'm very nostalgic myself, and I, I love collecting. I've, I've collected since I was a kid, and I still do to this day. Not to the same level that I used to do because I'm more specific and more you know deliberate in what i collect but yeah i mean I, I think i think the youtube and videos and social media and you know obviously tv you know the pawn stars yes of course but also gaming conventions have helped spark this e3s other conventions and there's a lot of things that have happened in the last you know 10 or 15 years to kind of build us up to to groom us to thinking you know, hey, I remember Super Mario. You know, like I, I want to play Super Mario and Zelda again. And then they look it up, and then they kind of get the bug again. People get the bug, and it's just a, a a snowstorm after that. And it's great. It's it's great to see. It's a different world of collecting. I mean, man, I mean, even just like Goodwills and and going out thrift store hopping. I've been doing that for years, even before YouTube and in, in the two thousands. Dude, I've been given boxes of stuff and found stuff. Before people were throwing in the dumpster, I had this whole guy with this huge box of it. I'd say I've told the story many times: Atari 2600. You know, say what you want. It was like my real first console I had, and this guy had this huge box of just 20 wood grain uh, 2600 and all these games was taken to the dumpster. Just throw it out. You know, it's just stuff you couldn't even sell. People didn't even want it. And believe it or not, there was a time. There was a time for that with the original Nintendo. There was a time with that for the original master system. There was a time with that with the Super Nintendo and N64. People were literally throwing them out because nobody wanted them. They wanted the GameCube. They wanted the next and best great thing. It's insane to think, like can you imagine someone taking out a box of N64 games with Mario 64 and Smash Bros and Star the, the Fox? The thought of and that is just does that just make your, you know, your blood boil? Like it's insane, but that was that was real. That was the real thing that was happening and it may even still happen from time to time now with like grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, you know, you know, Johnny Boy, he he left for college and the closet has all of his games and they just throw it out. We've seen it a lot mm-hmm. and
2: or they take it to goodwill or something and, and yeah, it's <laughs> it's really rare these days to find anything really significant like that anymore. I, yeah, mean, I you haven't, really, you I really haven't found anything other than maybe PS two and up. I very rarely find anything before that anymore. Because I, don't I think even, I think even I people working in Goodwill stores probably know what they're looking for now.
1: So I don't even bother looking at Goodwill a lot of the time for like games and movies and stuff anymore because I just know it's like it's a whole different world from when like like Dixon and me started collecting. We were in high school, so that was like fourteen, fifteen, like you know, seven years ago now, and it was a whole different thing back then. You could find like crazy, like special edition DVDs at goodwill you could find like games that you hadn't you could find golden eye at goodwill and mario 64 and all kinds of these classics If you can't find any of that stuff anymore
0: right yeah you're exactly right and they know what they're looking at now unfortunately Mm -hmm. you know like the 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 corporate has the corporate umbrella has has (laughs) come in and it has you know swiftly trained the staff to like hey when this stuff comes in look it up online i'm like can, can we just be real? Why does Goodwill have an auction site? I mean, come on. You know, I mean, this, this is, this is 100% suit and tie shiny shoe bullshit. That's going on there. Like that's all they're doing is they're looking up stuff on eBay and online and mm-hmm. price charting and they're putting it on their auction site. So you don't even get this stuff. Yeah. Thanks. Goodwill. And, and I, I'm look, I have a very, I have a love, hate relationship with Goodwill. i I've, my girlfriend and I, we have done a series on my YouTube channel called Thriftin. And we've done it for like six years now. I think we started in 2014, is one of the first one. I've got thirty or thirty-six or some odd episodes where we just went out to Goodwills and was looking up stuff. And you can watch it from episode one all the way to like the most recent one, which maybe is a year old now because we haven't gone out, obviously. Um, you we were finding all kinds of great stuff. I walked into one goodwill and luckily the camera was rolling, but we just there was this just stacks of ps1 games that just had arrived just stacked them i don't know maybe mm-hmm.
2: 50 60 games all great games he used to find Chunk them all the time in the, in, like, used to find them all the time in the cd section of goodwill
0: people wouldn't care there.
2: yeah yeah they wouldn't even separate them
0: right yeah they didn't even know and it's like now now you can't you can't really find that and i don't know man you know money money does weird shit with
1: people, it's the same you know? it's the same way with all of that stuff like like Fashion too. Like I used to go to Goodwill and look for like old like starter jackets, like NFL starter jackets from back in the day, or like oh yeah, you know starter hats and stuff like that. And you could find crazy stuff there back then. Like I I bought like a, I remember I one at one time I bought like a Spider Man three NASCAR (laughs) jacket. I remember for like five bucks at at Salvation Army, and you would never find that today.
0: Never, never.
2: It's just almost like they. I mean, it's it's just how it is in the world today. Like, obviously, if things are valuable, people are going to find them and try to sell them, and it's just how things are. And the internet has yeah, made no that. Doubt. The internet has made that a lot easier for the average person, even not with eBay, but even like, um, like even these independent apps that just you can sell things locally. Mm-hmm. Speaking of eBay, I really wanted to have a conversation with you about my distaste for eBay lately. I don't know if the distaste with you is still existing because I remember you had a problem with them back in the day, but. Oh yeah. Um, I'm having a real problem with eBay lately. Just uh, as far as returns go, and when you don't accept returns, and then eBay still doesn't go with you as far as wanting to take a return from somebody.
1: Oh, is this that? Uh, is this that boober lady? Who yes. Book.
2: Yeah. So she claimed that the computer that I sold her was defective, even though it was just a matter of her not having to, not knowing how to use the computer. And in my mind, do I say that it's wrong that I sold her a computer that she doesn't know how to use? Or is it her problem for not knowing how to use it? So why is eBay accepting a return for something that's not actually defective? Because I feel like that doesn't fall into the line of, like, a defective computer. I mean, i, I just like to find your opinion on that because, I mean, this has happened a few times where y- you don't accept returns. And people just seem to find a way to wiggle wiggle their money back from you. It's just you know,
0: yeah, because it's completely broken. Yeah, I, I actually I have a really great piece of advice for you regarding eBay. Mm-hmm. You ready for this one? Sure. Stop selling on eBay. I like the way you think. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I love eBay. I mean, I'm I'm actually sitting right next to my my plaque that I I had out because I was showing people. Because no one, no one believed me. I was actually a power seller on eBay back in the 2000s. I was actually hmm. making, I was making thousands of dollars a month selling on eBay, flipping things, doing stuff, yeah, going to garage sales, and not even game related, just stuff. I mean, dude, I I could tell you everything you need to know about a longer burger basket, you know, like high end, really nice baskets. Fucking sell those like crazy. But so here's the thing, yeah. Now I agree with you, man. I I eBay is not for sellers. Sellers is what make them money. And for some reason, they, they want to keep the people buying more happy than the sellers. Mm-hmm. It's very specific now. There's 101 ways they can weasel and scam their way um, and screw over a seller. Period. Period. And it, it used to not be that way. It used to not be that way. But they, they just don't care anymore. The system is so far gone that unless you're, unless you're selling something brand new, factory sealed, like new old stock Mm -hmm. stuff. There's, there's no way for you to do anything on eBay. It's, it's really crazy. Like it went from this great site where you could actually get good deals on things and sell your, sell your items and, and make, make good money to, uh, you're spending more money with your returns and fees. And yeah, man, it sucks. It's again, another, another thing that's completely changed. And I stopped selling, I stopped selling on there. I haven't, I haven't sold on there for probably six years now.
1: Yeah, man, I I could, you know what I'm confused by with with your thing is like, correct. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like all it's it's all automated. Like there's nobody that's actually checking the returned product, right?
2: Yeah. So I mean, I remember you told a story once in a video back then that you sold some lady a digital camera, and then mm, that was the last straw, right there, buddy. <laughs> and, then, yeah, that's it. and then she like sent it back to you, destroyed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then eBay's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not not our problem. We we'll just give her her money back.
1: Like it's crazy to me that a company—I'm pretty sure eBay is owned by Google, correct? Oh shit, I don't even know. I, it's just it, I, either way, they're making billions of dollars. It's pretty crazy to me that a billion-dollar tech conglomerate doesn't have anybody working at it that checks stuff like like there should be some. When when she says you sold me a defective computer. There should be somebody in the return process that's checking to make sure it's actually defective. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I
2: mean it's a one to one thing like you're sell you're the seller and then the and then the buyer gets the item. It's not really anything in particular they can check,
1: but well it takes like two set even just have have somebody that takes it to Best Buy and they're like, "Hey, yeah, you know, it's not defective." I mean, I feel you like know? that's
2: a little too complicated of a process for something that's supposed to be um you know,
1: I don't know. I, I feel like maybe, it, maybe for like a like a, a broken zipper on a pair of pants or something. We're talking about a six hundred dollar
2: book, Yeah, but you're talking about used items like you're going to train people at a specific store to know to check like certain. Certain. Um, yeah. You know what I, I mean? I, I, I don't yeah. know. But, you know, it, I'm getting to the point now like I don't sell that much on eBay. It's not that big of a deal but you know when I do sell I find that at least 20% of the time somebody comes up with some sort of bad excuse to want to return their item so.
0: And there's no recourse for you as a seller to you have to accept it and eat that cost.
2: It's pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. What can you do?
1: It's like the YouTube copyright system. Mm
2: -hmm. That's a whole other problem in itself. If if they (laughs)
1: decide that you violated the cop if some somebody just decides that you violated the copyright laws and then Google is like, look, I don't know, nothing to see here. They they uphold the strike. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that that is what it is. I mean, I can't be too mad with eBay. They did help me make some money. So because I ended up selling a lot of my collection this year, unfortunately, just because I found that I wasn't collecting as much as I had in the past, and it just wasn't really any reason to keep it all. So, you know, I'm trying to do some things in my life where I need a little extra fun. So I guess I'm kind of taking advantage of the. Wave of nostalgia, if you will, but you know, be be careful with carts, man. Be careful with that because there's a lot of
0: scams going on with that shit. You probably have already seen some. They want to see the inside of the board, and they want to
2: yeah. When I sold them stuff, so the best find I ever had was I found a copy of Earthbound, and the person who bought it wanted to see the board. So luckily, I I have a security bit, so I was able to do that for him, and he ended up buying it. So Mm. no issue there. But but um, okay, we're at about. 50 minutes I think we can go for about 10 more minutes so Nick did you sure. have any uh i w- I was saying if you had any uh, music questions for uh, for Jason because I know you guys are both musicians so you might have some uh some yeah, shop like to be talked of, there
1: definitely what kind of um what kind of music I know you said you uh learned drums at an early age what kind of other instruments do you play what kind of music do you like to make and uh what's the what's the story there
0: um, yeah, started at drums at 14 and that really kind of opened up my world to, um, the whole world of actually being a musician and playing and, uh, branched out from there did the whole band thing, uh, drumline marching, did the symphonic band that did the jazz band. That whole thing I was a big band nerd and, and loved it, you know, where some of my, my classmates were like, Oh, I have to be in this because my parents want me to be or whatever me. I loved it. I flourished in it.
1: We're so speaking felt, the same language my friend. I was a jazz band drummer
0: too. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Drummer as well too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So we're on the same page then. We're on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a it was a, a great experience. I loved it. I wish I wish I could go back and redo it again. I'd do it exactly the same. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and then fr- from there I started to uh, you know play in like bands and things like that like outside of school with friends and things and that evolved into uh, more of a technical side of things, I started to find that I really loved the geeky technical side of it. And again, that stemmed early from my dad who had gear around microphones, mixers, recorders, amplifiers, right? It was already in my wheelhouse. So it was just natural. It was a natural evolution for me to kind of get into the technical side of stuff. And uh, I, I began to learn uh, recording and, and, and DJing. I, got a, I bought myself a turntable and started to learn how to mix. And uh, with one turntable and then one, uh, two CD players running through a three-channel mixer. Oh man, yeah, can you believe it? I had to figure out how to like pause and play CDs, to, like time it <laughs> right with vinyl. It was insane. Nice. Uh, a lot of fun stuff, but yeah, man, I went to the technical side of it into audio engineering, and so that's kind of where I didn't know it was called at the time. But yeah, went into that and started to record my own music and produce songs, and I really found a love and passion for that and decided to uh, move out of my house and go to college for audio engineering because there actually wasn't one uh, in Portland where I, where I grew up at the time. There probably is now, I'm sure. Shit, I bet you there's colleges just for like to become a Twitch streamer or whatever <laughs> now. But uh, back then it was kind of this this, this um, the unheard of topic. Like, you want to be an audio engineer? Like, no, you need to go learn from like some wizard with a really long beard, that <laughs> stuff. There's no, there's nobody that teaches you that here. And, yes. uh, so I moved to Arizona where there was a school for it. And that really helped me, um, put the pieces together of, of combining what I had been doing for like the past eight years on my own. Now I can actually fine tune and and learn like, Oh, I, uh, when I, when I bump one K at three DB, I know what that's going to do to the mix. Like now I know what that means instead of like, just turn up the mid range, turn up the treble. you know? Life is more than just bass, treble, and mid-range now, which is, which is great. So yeah, yeah, I, it was super, super awesome, and that just evolved into, more and more tech, more and more, you know, um, audio, and I mean, here we are. You know, I'm, podcasting and and producing content and just and loving it. But it all stems back from really me being a musician, and I thank my mom for getting me a drum set and randomly, when I was,
1: uh, when I was uh, 14 years old. Mm. Do you play anything else besides drum?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I produce as well, so that, that's a whole thing in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I play uh, keyboards and synth, piano. I, um, I play, uh, well, I, I look at audio engineering and mixing as an art form as well it is. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of that. Um, but yeah, there's I, pretty much anything I can get my hands on, I attempt to, to play it in some form or another. And, cool create sounds with it so yeah for sure
2: do you find it's something that you have to learn and practice with or is it just something you might end up having the ear for because i find the same thing with video editing like it's hard to it's hard to teach people video editing because it's a little more of a not an art but it's more of a it's really technical sometimes like as far as trying to teach yourself audio like what you find was the best method when you were in school were you more of a hands-on person or were you more of like, here's how you do this thing and let me just keep practicing it until I get it right?
0: No, I, I definitely, uh, well, to answer your first question, I think you asked if like, is it something that can be um, taught and, or do you have to have an ear for it? Yes. And yes. But I feel that some people have the natural ability, uh, especially, um, I guess we're just even talking about just being like a musician. Like you have to, some people have a natural ability to be a musician. You either have the ability to your hearing or your your coordination or your understanding or your theory or something something crazy some wires inside your head are 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 mixed and twisted and connected in a way that it just makes sense to you. Hmm. But that can be applied to anything in life, not just musician. Like there's people I know that are uh, amazing, you know, at like math. They can just look at numbers and figure them out like I need a calculator you know what i mean like i don't know what i'm looking at so there's some people that just can can do that um you do need to have an ear for it absolutely i think that will help you in the long run immensely and having having a good ear is so important because like if the mix if the mix sounds right it typically in my mind it is right because we can fine tune things and tweak things and you can ruin a song because you're looking at the technical side of it so much that just listen to it. How does it sound? How does it sound to your ears? How does it sound? How is it sounding coming out of these speakers? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. But also I do feel that, yeah, you you should try to educate yourself as much as you can. And there's, there's such a world of knowledge out there now. I mean, gosh, people are just going to YouTube and, and learning about stuff, which that's that's a, a gift and a curse because there's not there's great information, but there's also not great information. So you have to really pick and choose what what you want to be as, as truth and kind of find out on your own. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think you, I think you need both to answer your question. You have to have a knack for it, a good ear, but also educate yourself.
2: I have a very, I have a very specific question, if you will, when it's an audio question, actually, when we, when I do the podcast and I I do the uh, mixing for it, when you are, when you do a limiter to do like, to do uh, one DB to get that, that high, uh, that high volume or whatever, what should you do? Match loudness also with the audio, or should you just do one or the other? You feel? Do you know what I'm asking? Okay. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you're asking, and this is this is something that you're talking about. Ma- match loudness, as in that's also in the limiter. Or yeah. What, I, I don't know. Thing?
2: I don't know if I'm supposed to do it separately or just do the match loudness. Is my thing because I'll find I'll I'll do the thing where I'll do the I always do um I do dynamics and then I do. Uh, normalize it, and then compression, normalize again, and then I do the limiter. But should I just do the limiter, or should I do match loudness instead? That's my confusion. Mm. So, you're two normal, you're normalizing twice. That's kind of
0: weird. I don't know that I would necessarily do that. I would maybe get rid of one of those. That just kind of kicked up a red flag for me on that. Mm -hmm. Um, The limiter, the limiter is supposed to obviously limit The audio and then take it up to a certain DB, right? And you're going negative, negative one. So you're right before clipping that, that really should be enough. Now, match loudness. That's also a fancy term for like makeup gain is, is, as how I've read it on some plugins. They have Mm -hmm. that. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah, you could do match loudness, but I think the limiter is going to take care of that already. It should Mm -hmm. anyway.
2: Well, I just—I guess it's like trying to say, like, if I have, like, if we just do audio like this, I won't add too many effects or anything. But say I'm doing an mm-hmm. introduction or whatever, and I have a little bit of music. Like, I should I do the match loudness to do it to make everything sound correctly? Like that's the way I interpret it, is that you do the match loudness to make sure everything sounds.
0: Oh, you're evenly. talking about the, over the entire mix.
2: Yes, over the entire
0: mix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, typically, y- yes, you can. Me personally, I wouldn't do that because it, it picks and chooses how loud it's going to be. It's just going to try to like use an algorithm to match it. Yeah. For, for me, what I would do, is, and this is what I've done on, on my show, is just put a mastering, uh, put a, a mastering compressor or even a, a limiter. Put that limiter at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to have to do some pre-mixing. So if, you, if you're bringing in other stuff, music or an intro or that, you're going to have to do a little pre-mixing on that to ma- do, match it yourself. Match it all yourself. Don't let the, the plug in like match loudness and figure it out. Like you do it yourself, get it right. And then put like a little mastering compressor right on like a master bus compressor right at the mm. end and just have that. Do just a little light, light compression on the end. Gotcha. Just to get everything kind of the, the same.
2: Gotcha. So yeah because yeah. I, I don't know whether i'm supposed to be like when i record with this mic it's a little easier because it's pretty pretty decent mic um oh
0: yeah re20 that's classic
2: yeah you like that <laughs>
0: sure do yeah yeah
2: i remember years ago i messaged you about when i first started recording another podcast i was asking you about the blue yeti and then we were using that for the whole podcast like everybody had the same mic but now um i have this for myself and then i have a uh, a sure mic for him when we actually do this in person when we're yeah, able to yeah, so yeah.
0: Um, great mic. That mic sounds great on kick drums too. If you ever use that, Nick, you, if you ever do some recording, you want to put that on your kick drum. Mm-hmm. That thing sounds mm. good.
2: Yeah, I took, a, I took an audio class when I was in college and they uh, this was one of the mics they used. So I was like, mm, I should probably get that. <laughs> I like the mm-hmm. way it sounds a voice. So great mic. Yeah. Um, great voiceover mic.
0: It's been used for years Yeah, for voiceovers it's great.
2: and radio. It's great. Definitely. Um, Yeah, I, d- I appreciate the advice because that was some things I was just confused about. Because I'll find that I'll export the the file and put it on on for podcasting, and then it just sounds like lower than it normally than it did in the mix. So it was kind of weird because mm-hmm. that'll always be the last thing I do is do the match loudness. So, so I, guess I hope I, my uh,
1: I hope my glitch just there didn't uh, disturb things. For you you sound
2: terrible, but uh, we're almost finished oh, okay. anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: well, there's no surprise.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um so uh, yeah i guess we can finish off with that i just we, we got a, we got an hour out of it that was a great conversation i really uh, i really appreciate the uh, the advice at the end there that'll yeah, be was very awesome. helpful
0: thanks for having me guys yeah no i appreciate that thanks for reaching out and um
2: yeah it's great to meet both of you yeah great, keep, dudes great to here. meet you definitely keep in touch um where can uh, where can the people find you on the internet jason just so you uh, can you can plug your stuff
0: yeah, sure. I, I'm everywhere, but uh, HeineHouse.com is the website. H-E-I-N-E, HeineHouse.com. That's the website. Uh, but in, in specific platforms, of course, Twitch, YouTube, podcasting. I do a weekly podcast, Heine Gaming and Tech Podcast, where I talk mm-hmm. about, obviously, gaming and tech and talk about news and current tech and gaming events. It's, it's, it's a great time. It's, it's just me. It's a solo show um and we we just have a great time talking uh to myself
2: (laughs) and the world you're very good uh you're you're very good vocalist so you know you sound very your audio sounds fantastic for recording this so (laughs) clearly you know what you're doing (laughs) try to come prepared always yes excellent Okay, Jason, thank you very much for uh for your time and uh we'd love to have you on again sometime in the future and uh hey, anytime. Just let me know. I'd be happy to show up. Absolutely, buddy. It was great meeting you. Have a great day. You too.
0: Have a good one. Bye now. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye.